You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. My name is Peter Maravellis, and on behalf of City Lights Booksellers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the shelter in place. We uh, continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, forums, uh, and much, much more throughout the fall season. So we're happy to announce that City Lights has reopened its doors to the public. Uh, of course, following San Francisco Health Department guidelines, we aim to make your visit to City Lights as safe as possible. So please do come down and visit us. We are open. Uh, you'll be once again able to browse our stacks. Our business hours are seven days a week from 12 noon to 8 p.m. We have worked very hard to transform the store for the age of COVID. The entrance is now on the Broadway side of the building. It's at 271 Columbus. So don't get confused. The original entrance is now an exit only. So we do encourage everyone, please do wear facial covering while visiting, trying to make our efforts to keep everything safe for as many people as possible for everyone. So as many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish in the grand tradition of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's seminal pocket poet series. We continue to produce uh, on a seasonal basis books of poetry, fiction, literature and translation, and nonfiction informed by a progressive political outlook. We have new titles coming out from David Barsamian, from Stan Cox, from the 21st Poet Laureate of the United States, Juan Felipe Herrera, and also new poetry from Uchi Naduka and Sophia Dolan. So to learn more about the books that we publish, as well as all of our upcoming events, visit us on our website at www.citylights.com. And you can also keep up on our activities on social media. We have a presence on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it, we're there. Uh, and please do subscribe to our newsletter and you also get updates on a weekly basis and uh, get to hear about events like this one. So we are delighted and honored to have with us once again in our virtual house, Eileen Miles, celebrating the release of their new book titled For Now, published by Yale University Press, which is at once a meditation on writing and poetry as much as it is about the experiences that inform the creative process. So uh, as many of you already know, Eileen Miles is an acclaimed poet and writer who has published over 20 works of fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and libretto. Their prizes and awards include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Warhol Creative Capital Grant, an award from the American Academy of Arts, and so on and so forth. Um, so we're going to be taking, talking tonight about the book For Now, as I mentioned, and we'll have Eileen read some excerpts and then have a Q&A at the end. So um, we're going to be posting the links in the chat function, and uh, you can ask questions there. Uh, we're also going to be posting links for... Um, purchasing the book. And this is really, really important because, you know, City Lights is struggling right now, like most indies are. Uh, when you purchase a book, it really helps us out. So please, please, please don't buy it on Amazon. Buy it here. Uh, we'll be posting the links. So Eileen Miles, welcome back to City Lights. Yay. So glad to be here. <laughs> so a lot has changed in the world since you last visited the store. We've so gone weird. virtual for one thing, and uh, at least as far as events go. And then, um, have you given many poetry readings since the pandemic began? I mean, what's it been like for you? Yeah, it's been a lot of, it's so funny. It's like a lot of, um, would you read for five minutes and send it, upload it and send it to us on your cell phone? You know, I feel like the new activity is, is like reading to myself and then we, so much we transfer 
you know, and then having shitty connections and sitting there forever thinking it's a five minute reading and I can't get it to them. So it's been, you know, and then this is the, this is the fourth zoom. Like it's so to do a zoom book tour is really fun and weird um, to be like, tonight I'm in Seattle, tonight I'm in San Francisco. And, you know, I did a, I did an event in um, um, Beirut um, this summer and that was kind of amazing. And I read with somebody in New Zealand. So it's just like really gigging, you know, from your bedroom. <laughs> so instead of time lag, do you, instead of jet lag, do you get time lag? <laughs> I get, yeah, I get location lag, you know? But I think this book, it's funny, this is the first time, the book, because it's since it has a lot to do with my apartment in the East Village, yeah. this is the first reading. I'm on Long Island tonight, so I'm not reading from in the apartment, because that's been really funny to be like, I could do a, a tour of, there's the bathtub, there's the door, you know? So that's been very funny that I'm so deeply literal, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk about the new book. I mean, it's, sure. it's very intimate. There is a lot going on. I mean, there's a really broad range of, of human experience. And it's also kind of this ongoing meditation on the creative process. So, um, and I think that the thing for me that really stands out is, is, is how present you are. I mean, standing as witness to the times. Could you talk a little bit about presence in relation to the creative process? Well, I think it was, a, it was the book came out of an invitation, which is this, series Yale has where they invite some writer to come and give a talk called Why I Write, which, you know, in a way you were like, great. And another way it was just like, that seems, you know, it's there's something horrible about writing about writing or writing about why you're writing, you know, and, and, and that I knew that I was going to be standing at Yale and reading the first half, you know, the first third of the book, you know, and it was like, I was following such illustrious people as Patty Smith and Nausgaard, but it was on the occasion of other writers getting grants for $165,000. And I was like, I don't want to give the damn talk. I want to get the check, you know? <laughs> so it was kind of like being the dinner speaker at Privilege, you know, but supposedly I was such a famous writer that I didn't need that big check. So I had to like, you know, unload all those feelings and then, and then project myself into a future where I would be standing at Yale giving this talk. And, and also that I had just, you know, the, um, the end of the road for poets, if you've never made any m money in your life, is you sell your papers to a, a library. And Yale had just bought my papers. So the whole thing felt like being buried alive, you know? So wow. it was very, I wanted to get, so it was kind of like, I had to really very much beam myself into that room in advance and write, write something that would make me feel comfortable standing in front of them. And luckily I had this disaster, which was my landlord was trying to evict me at that time. And so I could get away from the dilemma of talking about writing and getting to the poor dilemma of losing my home, um, which is in a way my favorite subject, which is something, you know, whether you're losing love or losing your home or losing money or losing your shit, it's sort of like or you had an amazing dream and you want to tell somebody and as you're telling the dream, you're losing it. So it was the perfect writing subject. And then when I had enough of my apartment, I could actually talk about writing. So it wound up and then I owed them after the talk, I owed them a fucking book. So I was like, oh no. Um, so it was a real challenge to, um, to kick this one out. So it, it feels very satisfying that it's done. And I feel like I, I 
did a dance that I, I approve of this message. <laughs> <laughs> so much of the, of the New York that, that, that you speak of, well, the world is, is now gone. I mean, that's a place that, that, you know, um, we'll never see it again. And, and yet, you know, it, it, you, you really capture this, this kind of like aura as a Benjamin in a very Benjaminian way, you capture the aura of this and, and also the human condition in, inside of, you know, these moments. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what it's like to look back at, at the, the New York of, of, you know, of that past and, and. Well, the past is funny because it's always still there and then not, you know, and so it's like, you know, like, like the East Village is, is a combination of all the East Villages it ever was, you know, and so, um, and there are, you know, the handful of us who continue to bump into each other. And my building is just an on, I mean, the, my neighbors are people that I've known for 40 years. And so it's like, and then, you know, and some of them are kicking off too, you know, so this, you know, mortality is exciting and horrifying. Um, and, and the neighborhood still is, I think is very, um, um, I don't know, it's, just, it's sort of like no other in, in many ways. I mean, there's just tons of NYU students getting trashed on weekends, but there's a lot of people just walking their dogs and kind of moving through it all. And I mean, the big, uh, you know, the big problem right now in New York, and this is apart from anything we're doing here, is that they, um, they've decided to kind of basically destroy East, East River Park, which is like New York City has two sets of lungs, Central Park and the East River Park. And now during a pandemic, they have this idea they want to close it and dump all this landfill on it. And, you know, in, it's the worst thing in the world. So I'm kind of getting involved with that. And that's making me feel very attached to home because I think we don't want to let them do it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. Um, I want to talk a little bit about poetry and, and, and what the qualities are that, that, that you look for in poetry. And I mean, if you were to, to be mentoring somebody, let's just say, you know, like, what would you look for in, in, in the work? Um, what is the kind of writing that rocks your world? What are those qualities? Oh, I mean, I think just, you know, great work always surprises you, you know, just, it just, it, it becomes something and then it becomes something else. And just when you had a feeling of what you thought it was, they went over there, you know? So I think in a way it's it just like, everything is familiar, but it's always the mix that seems un, unbelievably new, you know? So I think, you know, and I think this moment in time, a lot of styles are clashing and even the lines between like the, there was the, you know, the moment we all hated writing programs. And suddenly they're in some ways as good a place as any other to spend two years if they'll pay you, you know, and you could probably write a good poem and a writing program as well as working at City Lights or, you know, yeah. um, doing anything else, you know, but I just, I feel like, um, I mean, I don't know, mostly poets I like just read a lot, you know, and are interested in, you know, other poets and other art forms and are watching lots of movies and TV and just consuming culture rapidly and then not, you know, trying to figure out some way to take in a lot and also resist and figure out some way to have access to silence and quiet. Because I feel like that's, you know, the, the, the in between the words is the most important part in a poem, I think, and what you don't say. Yeah. And, and that's also what I what I really love about this book because it's not a massive book, but it's huge in other ways, right? In terms of ideas, in terms of you know the the, the content and the the weight of history, and also the the power of presence, you know, of being present 
as a witness to your time, um, which I think is something. I've, somebody asked me to ask this, and, and I think if you could talk about the importance of pronouns in the age of social media and the internet and hyper-reproducibility in a moment where, hmm. you know, it's just like. And I think you're not talking about gender, right. are you? No. Or you are. I, well, you are. Well, I think well, I think we're all a mix of of genders and pronouns and stuff. And so I feel like I mean I'm kind of I love that um, a person in their 60s and now I'm 70 decided to claim they. You know, and I feel like because they is plural and so so are we. You know, and I thought oh it's sort of baggy and loose and um and and I just I always think of in the in the Bible you know, because I went to Catholic school and when, when Christ was exercising some, somebody's demon and they asked the demon to say what their name was and they said, my name is Legion, you know? And that's, when it, that's what sold me on Bay. I thought, <laughs> I, like, I got a lot of devils in my heart. My name is Legion, call me Bay, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's just, it, you know, and I also thought it's like I have friends who got married, friends who changed their first name to stake, friends who you know, have babies, friends who ask you to celebrate all these things in their lives. So I feel like it's a very small ask to, to remember to call me they, you know? Yeah. So, hey, I'd love to have you read an excerpt from your book. Um, I also want to encourage everybody, please use the chat function. We're going to have a little Q&A at the end. So uh, go right ahead and, you know, use that little function. It's activated by the dashboard at the bottom of your screen. So. Um, okay, so you know the book is about writing and you know the book is about my apartment in the East Village, so we're just not going to go there at all. Um, I have a story. I'd like to start it in Marfa because that would explain how I got here and that alludes to the fact I got a Lannan Fellowship in 2015 and that brought me to Marfa, Texas and I thought, whoa, this is the place and I, it was a very cheap house anyway, so I lived there part of the time. I'd like to start at Marfa because that would explain how I got here, I mean Texas, and even why I am creating my apartment's double in my yard. I came to, it's another, I'm probably gonna keep interrupting myself to make sense, but it's like, so I bought this house and in the backyard, there's this little falling down shack. And what I've been doing with this house that was a total wreck when I bought it was every time I have a little money, I fix something. So in this spring, I um, or last fall, I turned the shack I got some people to fix up the shack so it's an, actually a room and you can use it. And I use it as like a little writing studio. But at some, at some point, I don't even take baths, but I have a bathtub in my apartment in the East Village. And at some point, I saw a bathtub in a backyard in Texas. And I thought, oh, I would like that in the shack. So I had that put in the shack. And at some point, somebody pointed out to me that I had basically duplicated my East Village apartment in the backyard in Texas. So um, I don't know how far I'm going to get in this excerpt, but I keep interrupting. But I guess that's... Um, and even why I'm creating my apartment's double in my yard. I came to Texas in 2015 for a month and a couple of days before the end of the month, I went to a going away party for Hillary, who I didn't know. She was friends with Brandon and Lisa, who were my best friends that month. We went hiking and I generally did anything they proposed since they lived here. The house next door was empty. It had a very big yard and we were wandering around trying to get peeks of the inside of the house, but it wasn't easy. A few days later, I asked someone I met, Mary, who sold real estate, if she would show me some stuff. And the first place she brought me was that house. So I made an offer. And by the fall, I was living there some of the time. Texas felt great because it was deeply unfamiliar. Moffa was an art town, so there was something to do, though it never felt like anyone cared if you did it. 
I bought the house as a single person. It was mine to write in, not a place that reflected the hopes of some relationship. I was no longer counting on that. I wanted my own future. I had a girlfriend in the 90s who was a filmmaker. And when, she got, and when we got involved, she told me the sad story that she had been robbed. They took all her film equipment, which was Super 8. She lived on 14th Street and robbery was a common thing. Be a poet, I said. The implication being that we had nothing and you couldn't take anything away from me. It was a mean thing to say, kind of, though she did write too. And honestly, I wanted to make films, always did, and poetry was a default profession. It was what I did because I had nothing and my gifts were invisible. Well, not entirely. I wrote on napkins and I wrote on cigarette packs and I wrote in tiny notebooks of all kinds and I wrote on legal pads. Ideally, I wrote with a nice thick runny pen, a rolling writer, originally a pen tell. It's moved on, here we go, exhibit A. It's moved on to being a pilot G210, otherwise known as bold. I like fine, you might say, well, I pity you. What I like best about cartoonists is the lettering they do within the cartoon, which is the world. The world is a balloon expanding and contracting with breath and you write when you feel that surface growing almost to notate the arc, which is living, breathing. Light has taken a corner and you do it in sound. You do it broad and you do it funky and you do it like a cartoon. I don't wanna bore you with my history. I'm sick of my history. I'm trying to tell this nice and convey the experience of living and writing unreflected, simply in it and almost having a graffiti style to its existence. Everything in a way is a public wall. Even the most private expression gets hot on its own visibility once in a while. Am I getting too abstract? I'm saying the emphasis was on being, not saving for a very long while, yet there was also a slow movement towards permanence, helplessly. I moved into this apartment where I am sitting now, and for a while I had a big drawing desk because my boyfriend, Scott, thought I could make money drawing cartoons. I was good. And possibly, he didn't want to have to always buy all my drinks. In the far right hand corner of my desk was a black, there's a woman out there who calls her cat every night. The cat's name is Vladimir. And she goes, Vladdy. It's so cool. It's like, it's like the bell. It's kind of amazing. On the far right corner of my desk was a black spring binder with a white label on it called the Haps. I had previously lived on the Upper West Side and I would set the clock and make myself right and it was fucked. But a good poem would occasionally come through and I wouldn't have to fix it so much. Pushing a word here and there around. It would become one of my reading poems and early on in my life in New York was a reading project. I would go out and read my poems to anyone. I have written about this before, so this is the undetailed version. This one's all sound, even better that it's a writing project, not a talking one. I am speaking silently here on my couch. Eventually poems became books. My first book was small, published by the poet Jim Brody. I had forgotten until this exact second, but there was an original of that manuscript and I did the title page in Sharpie. It looked cool. Jim had written for Rolling Stone, so he got some big photographer to take my picture. The title was The Irony of the Leash. I wore a black turtleneck and I had a rope which sort of went around a corner so it looked like I was tugging something pretty big, but you couldn't see it. You could only see the stress on my face. I thought this was a great cover, but Jim lost the photograph. So Steve Levine drew a cover and it was very high school, like the kind of detailed drawing you would do in your notebook. I remember another manuscript that had a sticker on the outside that said, hey, Ted Malice, what do you think about Sappho's boat? That manuscript was amazing because I had submitted it for a grant and Muriel Rukeyser had been a judge and I got the grant and she wrote on the manuscript, 
should be published. MR. Holy shit. And she died. Eventually, I developed a system of filing in which every year the good, really finished poems would get slid into a binder for that year, and I could see the growth of my eye. I just had a pile of these binders, and I kept them in a milk crate under the bed. Sometimes they would move into the file cabinet I found on the street. I'm not trying to be charming. It's just a fact. My whole world laughed at the notion of found poems since everything in our world was found. I think for a few years, the poems and the binders would move around my home variously, but never went out. My poems were like little shut-ins. In this condition, I mean the kind of permanent record of what I had done, apart from books and magazines, which I was always avidly sending my poems to. It was shit in the early years. Some guy would say, you sound lonely. I think I've told that story before, but it's true. And I don't think any man has ever received that response from an editor, but women always do, despite my often resistance to even being considered female. That's what you think I am. And I buy a cup of coffee and you say, ma'am, this is going well. What am I reading lately? Tristram Shandy, which is foolish and rhythmic, and the Quran, which is ecstatic and smart. I was sitting on the plane the other day reading the Quran. That felt great. The first section is called the heifer, though I don't know why yet. And uncannily, I was also reading a journal my dog subscribes to called Livestock Weekly, and it had heifers too. To read about ranching and cattle raising is to experience the enormity of the slaughter, which is life. I remember showing someone my book of poems, my box of poems, and they said, don't you have a copy? And I gleamed, no. I like the perversity of the original. I would never lose this. There's no double. It's the once. When I got a poem perfect for years, I would destroy the draft. I don't have space and I don't have time. Stuff, of course, was in books. But this was good, how I fell. I expected all the usual things and they have happened. Around 50, I became a college professor. It came and bit me on the ass. There are places where only certain poets read. And for me, one of them was UCSD. Chiefly because of my friendship with Ray, which I've always thought of as a relationship of class. I love her work, but I think it's very important to us both that we come from working class backgrounds and we know it. I think with her, it creates some aspect of her knowing how she's curt and jumps in her work. For me, it's language purely, I think, and how I don't mind losing you at all because the story is simple and it's all sound. I remember every poem I ever wrote. I can't recite them, but they come back like waves because they are a part of my brain. They are how I have a brain. My brain is inside out. Poetry proves me. I don't give a shit what happens now. Adam was talking about forgetting the other night, and I think it was a Lewis Hyde thing. There's this Germanic, which is somehow material, like lost, and the Greek, which is more akin to vanishing, either becoming abstract or becoming covered, paved over, invisibilized. On the phone, I said, oh, I'm, I'm Germanic. Adam said all his poet friends jumped on the Germanic, but in the days since, I'm thinking how Greek I am, thoughts falling into the ether if I don't write them down. Forgetting is not stuff, it's the act of once holding information or fact or emotion in my brain, and then slowly, inevitably, it drifts away, the void quickly being filled by the new idea, so to speak, if the old thought is there at all. When they wanted me to come to San Diego, they did the most marvelous thing, which is they moved me. They picked up all my worldly goods for 5,000 bucks. When I went back, of course, there was no big truck, and for a while, I knew exactly what it cost. About the same. It happened in dribs and drabs. I liked that the truck happened once. It was so cool. We went out and bought a house 
first so we could tell the truck where to go. They bought me the house, which is sort of why I wanted the job. Such an offer. Don't you want my papers too? In New York, I had already made the acquaintance of Bill, the archivist of the Beats. I mean, I knew Alan. And the thing about the poetry world is once they all get dying, you could become anyone. I had Alan's love. I am truly part of that family as well as several others, but I'm not sure I can honestly travel to Iceland as one of the Beats, though I have. Now I was about 50, I was ready for the big kill, which is to sell my papers. It means all those scraps and notebooks and recordings and binders and crap. They had such a collection in San Diego in the library, and there was something about them having to buy them before I was hired, and they didn't seem particularly interested, which felt a little insulting. I felt like they were hiring me because I had energy and could do things, but I wasn't exactly the right kind of poet. I asked Bill what he thought, and he said, wait. He didn't think I was old enough yet. And my friends who had sold to San Diego and Stanford hadn't gotten that much, and I thought that I could get more, and I was right. So I waited. The uncanniness of going to California with my everything was that along with everything for the first time, my box moved. And by now, I hope it's clear, I mean the box of poems, the milk crate. I have told this story at least once on a stage holding a milk crate. It went well. I have been tearing my apartment apart looking for the notes from that version, but they are nowhere to be found. It was only seven minutes long, and frankly, I think this recitation is about four times longer than that. I may regret including it this year. I think the idea about the milk crate presentation was that it would be a television show. I considered popping the screenplay in here. It will probably wind up in my archive. By then I had published quite a lot of books and of course now I was thinking about the big book. You have your retrospective as a poet, which is your selected. People outside the poetry world always call it the collected. They don't know the difference and you sound like a twit if you said selected every time they say collected, but I do do it sometimes. They have no idea what it is that we do. It sounds like a lot of filing. I had a long office in the outside of the house in San Diego. I mean, like down in the yard and I faced a canyon. The binders were in the drawer in one of the new legal sized file cabinets, a kind of death, like me sitting in my office at school thinking preserved, preserved. There was something tragic about the whole damn thing. I got the house and my girlfriend got classes to teach so that they respected our relationship, but it atomized almost right away. So the whole effect of permanence, even the swaying bamboo that I planted felt sneering. Permanence was the worst. Yet when I was young, I liked to secrete that one final copy of the perfect poem, destroying all the drafts. And now I began to take them out one by one to make mine selected. I mean, it was pretty obvious. Lisa asked for poems to translate for a volume of American female poets in Italian. It seemed like the perfect request. Italian was the true measure of something. I am hesitant to say beauty, but after I made that selection, I had the pith and I began to fatten the thought and the selection wavered for about seven years. It was about saving my past, but uncannily it was about destroying it too. I read Moira's book where Mary Wollstonecraft's placenta did not come down. So the doctor stuck his dirty hand inside and pulled it out and that's how she died. It feels relevant here. Eventually I got back to New York. There was a little time in Los Angeles too, but I knew that I would never love again in California. The choice was academic or military. I'd rather military, but it just never happened. 
I liked my life in California for a while. Then my dog died. My life was so tragic, I bumped into a plant in the backyard one day trying to mow the lawn, and I said, sorry, tree, and that became the title of a book. They bought me a house, and they bought me a truck. I'm thinking about San Diego still. I drove east in that truck in L.A. for a couple of years. I went back to New York, and I slid the milk crate under the bed. I stopped in El Paso on the way, and we, now myself and the cat Ernie, stayed with the birds, the coolest family in the world, who have a press, Cinco Puntas. Their neighborhood somehow resembled the one we just left in San Diego. Brown hills surrounded us, cats walked in the suburban street. Ernie danced around the house, staring out the windows. Sure, Ernie doesn't want to stay here, drawled Bobby. No, he's going to New York, sorry. A couple of years later, he, he did wind up moving west and lived till the end of his life with them. He hated my girlfriend. He hated New York. Ernie was an outdoor sort, a member of many families, a man of the street, and New York sitting on a windsill when the world went green in the spring was for him fucking hell. He was out there and he needed to be in it, and he lived and died like that. All the time I was developing my selected, I was carrying it around. I figured there were some secret poems that had never been published and they were in there and I would just pluck them out, but I just kept writing in the present and I just never wanted to look at in that old box of yellowing pages in many romantic fonts. It was heavy. I took it to Cape Cod. I took it to Vermont. I took it to Montana. I had a new girlfriend. She was pretty young and there was a nonfiction teacher on the faculty that had us all over for some kind of stew made of venison. And I think she thought I was the biggest pervert in the world. I mean, come on, venison stew? But I brought my box of poems there, Montana. I remember them feeling so heavy, like a cat you inherited from a dead person that kept staring at you. We lived above a lawyer. It was her house, but business was bad. So she moved into her own basement and rented the house to us while I taught. Before I left, she did my will. She wanted me dead. Probably she felt dead living underneath her own tenants. I tried it in San Diego, it was bad. It's so much better fetishizing my life than my writing. I may not attract a biographer, but when I am done, I will be done. By the time the selected came out, it all felt like dross. I don't know what that means, there was a shadow. I just know that starting around 1997, there was the beginning of something I think of as the archival moment, and before, I I sold anything, I already started to feel the creeping value of the past and the new place the past was playing in the present. Intuitively, I had always known to save things, but temperamentally, I'm the opposite, and I felt compelled to create instead a radiant whole. I have one version of reality in which I parked a truck on 11th Street when we came back from Montana. We definitely unloaded outside her apartment first, but I think the box remained in the cab and also a big plastic bin of photographs. I thought, who would steal this? And I also remember coming to the truck to move it that morning, some morning, in the shock of its cab being empty. I don't know if this is true. You know when something terrible happens and you stand there and the wah, wah, like the world keeps changing shapes because you can't believe it's gone. Is this a memory? or a sensation of loss, a radiant hole? I believe a street person opened my truck. My therapist says no. A Ford Ranger opens very easily, and they carefully lifted out the box of binders and the big bin of photographs, my manual typewriter, a low, soft, green Hermes, 
the large ancient Merriam-Webster dictionary that David Rattray gave me. All these are things that to my mind, people who break into trucks wouldn't bother stealing. Instead, they gently placed my guts on the curb, replacing them with their dirty old backpack and maybe a trash bag full of shit. And they hopped into the front seat with a six or some dope and maybe someone to have sex with, climbing out with their stuff before dawn, the milk crate and bin of photos just staying there, ready to be picked up as garbage. Sometimes I see a squatter poking through my binders in the box next to the black trash bags, discovering poems and took a pile inside and pasted them on the wall. So there's a room in the East Village today, about 10 years later, wallpapered in my shredded yellow poems. So in 2015, before I went to Texas for a month, I had a conversation in New York with a man named Chris. He was an agent for archives and he said, well, what do you got? And I told him about the notebooks dating back to 1960 and all the posters from readings and performances and videotapes. Any pictures? Well, yeah, though it's kind of weird. And I told him how I had a collection of archival photographs of myself and Andre Wozniczynski on a couch as he was putting the moves on me. Adrian Rich and I hugging at some reading and there's captioned photos of me by Allen Ginsberg and even outtakes from the Maplethorpe shoot. Great, said Chris but I don't know where they are. There's this box. And then I described the poems and binders in the milk crate. It's weird, I said, but I'm not sure where those two things are. I mean, I've got to have them. I remember in the past people saying, you don't have a copy? No, I proudly smiled because I would never lose it. I hadn't considered forgetting where it was. Can you find them, he asked. I think they are either in my New York storage space, or I guess I still have one storage unit in San Diego, a place called Big Box, I smirked. He totally was not interested in the details. I mean, they could be there, but that doesn't make sense. I'm talking to myself. I was thinking of all the trips, meaning surely the box was somewhere on the East Coast. I saw it here. I saw it there. He paused for a moment, sipping his drink. He was thinking about the box with the binders, or maybe it was the photos. We were in a place on Lafayette called St. Ambrose. I liked it here, I said when I sat down. I do too, he smiled. Now he looked up at me. Do you have someone who can look out there? You need to find it. Yeah, Mark. I can do that. He nodded, thinking. We have to eliminate all the possibilities. In my business, he said, we call a box like that the gusher. I'll stop there. Wow. <laughs> so, hey, we've got people from Brazil in the house tonight. How oh, cool Brazil. is that? Love you. Hi, Danielle. <laughs> so I have a question from Denise. Denise asks, do you consider yourself a poet of place? Yeah, but I, I consider myself a poet of many places. Because I think that like part of the thing you do as a poet is you're always taking soundings of place. You know, like in New York, you're like in a place where there's so many people and the spaces are small and you're going out and you're like excited because you've been in this, you know, and you go to the West Coast. There was always this myth in the poetry world, like people from New York go to California and their poetry gets really bad. But I don't think that's true. But I do think that it's like there's just a different space and you have to figure out how to it's almost like going from like a, a, a tiny room to a loft. You have to figure out how to write in that you know, and, and not, um, and not lose coherence. 
you know? And so for me, every time I've lived in a new place, I've had to figure out how to write all over again in a way. Um, but I think, you know, you start to know that you will do it. You just have to kind of not freak out too much when you write really bad stuff when you get there. <laughs> so I have a question from EG. Um, would you mind speaking to the idea of erasing one's past as a way of preserving that same past? Huh. Um, God, I wonder what you mean in particular. I mean, I think it's so weird. I mean, I think part of what I'm talking about in this book is about, I mean, I was kind of, you know, I mean, like, I, I haven't drank for like 37 years, literally. But when I was young, I was like a very avid alcoholic and speed and all that. And I lived in a very chaotic way. So I was very proud of the fact that nonetheless, I was very neat about saving things. And I kept all my papers and I felt very, you know, like, um, they might think I'm a mess, but I'm very, you know, I know who I am and I know my, you know, and I think the irony of this thing that I'm writing about here is then, and, and then I stopped drinking. And then the person who was sober seems, seems to me lost their past. And then the thing that's really funny is that I have all this discomfort around the idea. I mean, like Yale has a shit ton of my stuff. So much of me is preserved, you know, and it makes me anxious. And what I realized is that in some un unerring way, um, some deep part of me had to destroy the past, had to actually, um, I don't know, live on some conceptual edge where I'm not, I'm not this, I'm not this proof of all that time. I'm just, I am that proof of all this time. You know, whatever happened to me happened to this person and, and whatever I've written that's gotten published is, is what survives and what, you know, what is lost doesn't matter. I mean, I think we all write more than we publish, hopefully, you know, and that there's just, a, there's a part, there's a process of selection, which is, choice and there's a process of election selection which is loss you know and loss comes in all these different packages but i think it's part of the story of every writer you know and it's i'm very happy to lose the past and weirdly you know with this box that i'm talking about every time i picked that heavy fucker up i went oh you know it's like i hated it i hated this proof of my past you know and so i kind of got my wish it seems so i have a question from um Renee, Arena, I'm sorry. Arena asks, when it is done, when does the process of writing the poem become the poem? Oh, I think it becomes the poem when you begin, you know? And I think it's a question of whether you're gonna um, pay attention to it. You know, I mean, I think we've all had the experience of like you're lying in bed and then you get this great line and you're like, ah. Oh. I have to turn the light on to, you know, and it's like, and I often do, but then sometimes they keep coming or there are days where it's just like, I feel, I do feel kind of enthralled to the poem, you know? And so I think that the poem kind of arrives and it couldn't arrive and just be like a fool and just a talking piece of garbage, but it's just like, but I just do think that there's, a, there's like, an, it means, you know, obviously we all sit down, like in a writing workshop, you say, write a poem about a dog in Switzerland and three pieces of light, you know, and you're watching them and you think, who could write that poem? And then at some point you think, I'll write that poem. And once in a while it works. So there was such a thing as just, you know, and I think when I went to workshops, I was like, Alice Notley, you're not going to tell me how to write a poem. I know how to write a poem. And then I would write a poem and it would be a poem. And I was like, oh my God, you know, but, um, but I do think that, that I think that 
generally speaking, the poem, the poem announces itself. And I think it's sort of already there and you have to just let it happen, you know, because for instance, you never know if it's a short or a long poem. You just don't know, you know, and you might not have the time for what wants you, you know. Aaron asks, given the event airing after this, do you think poets have a political obligation or should poetry offer a place of escape? I think they're both completely true. I, I resent anytime somebody tells me I have responsibility as a poet or I have an obligation. And certainly as a queer, there's been years of like, aren't you obliged to write poems that, that talk about, you know, your lesbianity or your transness or whatever. And I just feel like, do not, t I mean, I just feel like that is so oppressive. And yet I think what, what I write is inextricable from my gender and, and my political response, you know? So, A, I'm very excited about this event tonight. Just as it's gonna be very interesting to see what these two, you know, old monsters do with <laughs> each other, you know? But I just think, I mean, we're, we're, we're part of our time and it's certainly, you know, like what's that horrible guy? Um, I always forget his name conveniently. There's an, a white, there's a rich white heterosexual poet that people love who's uh, a formalist. Do you know who I mean? He's very, I mean, people like this guy, he's like a great, and he, you know, anyway, just like, they're just kind of terrible, horrible to me, poets who don't allude to a politic at all. And, you know, I mean, they're perhaps the most political poets of, of all in terms of what they exclude and what they, you know, and what they wield and, and what the, how they're valorized. You know, so I think we all stink of politics. There's no, and we no escaping it. And I think writing though in itself is inherently escape and escape. And I, that's why I do it. I, I would be crazy as, you know, I'd be talking to myself in the street if it wasn't poetry, you know. So I have another question. This is from Chelsea. How did you come to the title of your new book and picking the photograph on the cover? Um, yeah, I think the title just seemed obvious. Um, I don't even remember when it came, but I just felt like that was my purpose. I was writing it for now. Um, it's so weird, I see Billy, no, it's not Billy Collins. Somebody's saying Billy Collins? No, somebody, somebody's gonna come up with this guy's name, hopefully. Was it Pinsky? No, it no, Pinsky. no, no, no. Um, but he's rich as hell. He's independently wealthy. And um, so, well, anyway. Um, the, the the cover is really fun though because um they had some you know like it's i hate you know like poets you know poets get older and that picture remains and i can you could and it happens in five years where i was like i don't look like that yes the name just came up seidel um, ah. yeah seidel i was like no no don't make me read even half a poem by this person no i don't like james merrill either but so i'm watching the chat it's very funny but um yeah, so there was, uh, I think Gail had a nice picture of me that I think I look hot. It's a good picture. But, you know, I think the point somehow is not simply to look hot, you know. And so um, I, I, was at a, um, I was at a conference in Berlin um, last year. And there was this great photographer who was like a scientist who just loved taking pictures of poets. And, um, and so he took a slew of these pictures and they all were kind of aged, you know, looking. But like, like, I look like a beautiful thing, you know, like. I, you know, I look at a young picture of myself like that Maplethorpe took and I look like a thing, but a beautiful young thing. And this is like a beautiful, and when I saw, you know, because it was a talk, 
I just, I just thought it was so great. I looked like I was pontificating and that I could be kind of Germanic. And Yale was like, no, no, that's not, you know, people aren't going to want to look at that. And I was like, no, it's good, you know. And I think it's also it's fun to take yourself seriously and just know that you could be mocked for it. But I thought that's sort of like being a pair of columns, so it's, you know, as I mean. <laughs> But um, yeah, picking the photo, it's, it's important, the cover, the photo, those things are really, because it's like, you live with these books for years, and you know, in the, in the world that we're not living in right now, you twirl with these fuckers, you know, and so it's just like, you have to look at that shirt day in and day out, so you really get what you want. Yeah. Well, we're coming on the witching hour, and I know some of us want to make popcorn before the, uh, you know, the grand uh, um, theater of cruelty takes place. Yeah. Eileen um, Miles, thank you so much. Um, yeah, Peter, thank, thank you. A marvel, a marvel, marvelous. Oh. And please buy books, folks. Come on, you got to support City Lights. You got to support Eileen. And I'll get a nickel too, so it's great. Yeah. So we posted the link down there. I'll keep the room open for a little bit so you get the link. Uh, thank you all for being here. This has been great fun. And uh, man, be safe, be well, kick ass. Thank you. Ciao, Bellas. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com slash events.